0: From training
1: to performing, join our big league conversation.
0: Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 100. We've made it to our centennial episode, and to celebrate, we've got an awesome guest who's super accomplished in the track and field community, but he actually has a ton to offer folks across a wide variety of sport disciplines. I've learned a ton from interacting with him and reading his work, and I think you will too, so this is a great way for us to celebrate 100 episodes. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself, in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance, as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality. You won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, Really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, Personally I love it for for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough, so it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, On a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. And we split our time between two states and and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, So life is inherently crazy and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, they'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest is a track and field coach who has coached national, world, and Olympic champion athletes. He began as a high school coach before moving to the college ranks at Wichita State University, the University of Houston, University of Texas, El Paso, LSU, Texas, and Florida over a 26-year period. During his time at LSU, the program won multiple national championships, including back-to-back men's and women's national titles from 1989 to 1990. In 2006, he was hired to run the United States Olympic Training Center, and in 2009, he was made head of the Lee Valley Athletic Center by United Kingdom Athletics to organize the coaching and training of the UK's athletes in the run-up to the 2012 London Olympics. Since 2009, he's worked as both a coach and educator at Altus. Please welcome to the show, Dan Path. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to chat with you, and I think this is a, a, an awesome episode in the making just because um, often I, I remind people that you have to be a good generalist before you're a good specialist, and I think a lot of your work and, and a lot of your teachings really have done a great job of, of underscoring that, and so while this may be a baseball podcast, I think we're going to speak in um, in big-picture terms so that folks can maybe appreciate a lot of the, the things that that lead us to that level of specialization. Yeah. Um, so where I'm going to start is a while back, um, you had a great podcast um, with Lee Taft and, and you touched on your background as a teacher and, and how it shaped your career as a coach. So I'm curious, you know, when, when you think about that concept, do you think the entire strength and conditioning industry at times loses sight of the, the importance of, of, of being a teacher? Or is that a trend that maybe you haven't necessarily noticed?
1: Well, I mean, you hate to generalize and stereotype, but I I think there's a a trend or a tendency, especially with uh, this generation of S&C coaches, to be super rich in content knowledge, but maybe a little bit poor in application or problem solving, if you will. And I think that's what uh, being a classroom teacher or working in an educational setting kind of bridges that gap. it forces you in skills that probably aren't taught in college curriculums or certification courses.
0: I think that's a great point. And, you know, what are the, what are the key principles, you know, as you look back on your teaching career that, that were helpful for you? And then maybe also key principles that may be, um, you know, imperative for a coach to have in order to, you know, continue to develop as a, you know, as a helper to athletes?
1: Well, this may be a little bit of a broad stroke, so stop me if I I get lost in the weeds. But when you're a teacher, uh, you're forced into management and communication skills that oftentimes in a homogeneous gym setting, you might not be encountering on a regular basis. So you have to deal with administration and school boards and parents and you know, different types of students back in my day, and that was when mainstream education was in vogue. So, uh, every type of student in the world was thrown into the same classroom. So, you you were forced to develop critical listening skills and learning to listen, not to talk, but to to figure out where these students were, and, and the. Accountability, whether it was Bertison or not, you know, forced you into efficiencies and you know foresight that you wouldn't normally get, say, in a collegiate SNC setting or professional team setting, but yet, you know, when you talk to SNC coaches, this is where they stumble is in management and communication.
0: I, I look at my role. Um, more than ever before, you know, as I was kind of writing up the questions, these podcasts, I'm realizing that so much more of my role is, uh, is regarding teaching and, and just learning how to scale things. You know, it's one thing to, to feel like you have the solutions it's another thing altogether to teach an athlete to find that solution on their own when you're not with them or to teach a coach that may be, you know, working, you know, with, with an athlete remotely, how to actually, you know, take advantage of that. Has that been your kind of your same experience over the course of a career? Yeah.
1: I, I think there's a gap in figuring out what people really know or what they think they understand and what they really don't know or lack of, layers of understanding. So a lot of people will say, yeah, I understand that, or I know that, or I've done that, but then you watch them work and you know, they don't get it.
0: Absolutely. And you know, your, your work's been recognized and respected by coaches across a number of disciplines. And I, I guess my, my question for you is, you know, I, I've learned a ton for you and I'm a baseball guy, right. And I, I know there are people from the hockey community and, you know, the NFL, obviously the track and field world, all those things who who feel the same way. So I'm curious, you know, what are the principles, you know, that that buy you a seat at the table, regardless of the sport in question? Like I know, you know, for me personally, obviously, the baseball realm, you know, it leads itself to NFL quarterbacks and tennis players and swimmers and some of these overhead athletes. Do you find that there are certain principles and maybe it's the communication you know, piece that we just discussed that, that kind of do buy you a seat at that table, regardless of the sport in, in question?
1: Well I would say in review, uh a lot of people communicate with me because I have vast networks in all sorts of realms. And a lot of times these networks operate parallel to sport and sometimes they're miles away from sport, yet they have influence and implication in sport. So I say my ability to network and build networks would would be a foundational reason why sometimes I get a seat. Uh, I've always been an applied biomechanist of sorts, so I have pretty firm convictions on a technical model. Uh, Granted, there's bandwidths to all models, but uh, if there's gross violations of the essential model, then injury risk, I think, go up and mechanical efficiencies go down. So I think a lot of people value my ability to see motion and understand motion and forces and why things might be happening or might not be happening. Uh, And with that, of course, you have to be pretty good at kinesiology and probably motor behavior because you've got to change movement and habits and ingrained habits and how do you do that. So most of my work today is about return to play and return to perform or just global biomechanical efficiencies. And I think a lot of teens and organizations may have a cursory understanding of it, but they don't know how to apply it or problem solve with those skills.
0: Interesting. So I actually maybe build on that a little bit more. We talk about like a, a cursory understanding. Is it, Is it that they, they maybe appreciate the different pieces, but not how they all fit together. Like, I I mean, I guess, do you have, do you have an example of, of of what you're getting out there?
1: Yeah. Well, I I mean, ecological dynamics is the rage right now. Right. So, you know, build constraints and let the athlete explore and experience and so on. But I, I think it's a little more nuanced than that, you know, like, There's not 10,000 ways to hammer a nail. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, the the loop that you use with the hammer may have some variance or bandwidth, but nobody hammers a nail in a true vertical plane or a true horizontal plane or a true diagonal plane. There's a, a movement loop that they replicate. So I think everybody understands ecological dynamics to some degree, but then they take it to the nth degree, and, and in my opinion, they lose the
0: plot. That's fascinating. And, and I think we talked about it in the context of the baseball pitch. No two are identical. It's, 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 it's a heavily specific motion, but the spin rate, the spin axis, the, uh, the actual forces generated from the ground up to the hand, are going to be markedly, or not markedly, but subtly different um, between each pitch. Is the, is the takeaway from there, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of takeaways from there. Is it this concept that that unyielding specificity may not be necessary to, to protect our athletes, that we do need to, in our training, give them a, a, an element of adjustability? Or is it just that we need to appreciate that you know tissue loading is tissue loading, even when it comes in, in subtle variances? again i
1: think there's a lot of layers to that so you know are we exploring all stops in the force velocity curve are we looking at all types of, of strength and conditioning inputs um you know the type of muscle activity that we're chasing i think it's real easy to get biased whether intentionally or unintentionally with our prescriptions and our our paradigms and our ideology and you know, I I kind of use the analogy. I want a big toolbox with a lot of tools, and it's my job to figure out when to use tools in a timely manner at the appropriate moment.
0: That's a that's a, a great point, and it actually kind of leads to my next question. And we had a we had a good exchange. Uh, I think it was back in January, and we were talking about in season training. Um, and its relationship to, to injuries, and more specifically, muscle versus tendon injuries. And you you commented on how in the tracking field community, some of the most significant injuries af- often happen, and this is you know somewhat counterintuitive, during the taper period. So, you know, and, and not only that, they're a unique type of injury. So can you maybe elaborate on those findings and uh, and then maybe even attempt an explanation on the why behind them? Yeah, so a a lot of this
1: is uh, tied to research Dr. Keith Barr's doing at Cal Davis on tendon remodeling and tendon research and what have you, and it was interesting that he had some observations, you know, loose epidemiological case study collection, and it kind of mirrored what we were finding uh, in three different instances. I did pretty elaborate longitudinal studies, like over three to five-year periods of you know, when are injuries happening and how severe are they? And is there a pattern or trend to these? And what we were finding is some of the most severe and the most recurrent injuries were, were happening in season, you know, especially around championship time when people were, were tapering. And usually in the taper, what happens in our sport is People stop lifting or they go to maintenance lifting or, uh, you know, just select a few exercises for some rationale. Uh, While in the meantime, they upregulate field work, you know, so a lot more change in direction or sprinting or accelerating or block starts or what have you. And I think what we can infer from some of Barr's work is a lot of our classical everyday work uh, deals with connective tissues in a unique way where the weight room deals with those tissues, but also with the muscular system. So what we were finding is absolute strength in some of these uh, athletes was ignored or put on the back shelf and the tendon work obviously elevated. And so this imbalance between muscular Expression and tendon or ligament expression kind of got out of kilter. And it also circles to the concept of, you know, people have gone mad on this stiffness idea about getting uh, joints stiffer so that they can apply force in a shorter period of time. But uh, joint control has many variables. It's, you know, in my book, maybe 20 some variables that really control the movement about a joint. And and there's also compliance part of the equation. So if we make something stiffer, what does that do to the compliance? Because in change in direction during amortization or yielding phases, compliance is, is imperative. So if we bias our training to stiffness or tendon ligament emphasis, we're ignoring a lot of the other cofactors that control joint movement, expression, and
0: stability. It's fascinating. Do you think there's a there's a, an element of individual difference on in this? This is something I've I've wrestled with quite a bit over the years. Um, just in light of the the population we deal with, and you know, in a, if you walk into a typical baseball clubhouse, you're going to find guys, you know, with, who are beyond loosey goosey. They're crazy hypermobile, and it's it's that remarkable congenital laxity that makes them. Uh, you know, able to contort their bodies in, in all kinds of uh, crazy ways to to deliver a baseball. Um, and then at the other the spectrum, we certainly have athletes who are who are hardwired, you know, for this stiffness concept that you outlined. It's some of what makes them, you know, good. Both their their actual muscular shortness, as well as probably some protective tension that's layered on top of it. Do you think the the individual response here is, is different? That maybe, you know, some of our more hypermobile athletes. Um, you know, they may better fit from like more frequent stimuli at a a slightly lower intensity almost to, to give them that feeling of of joint stiffness that we want, or even heavier loading. And then our, our athletes that may carry more natural stiffness may need a a little bit of less dosage. Do you you think that the, I guess the level of laxity matters in this discussion?
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think athletes, in whatever sport you you are coaching, exists on a continuum, a spectrum, if you will. And that's the part of master coaches. They identify where this athlete sits on the spectrum, whether it's anthropology or body prototypes or, you know, training bias. You know, training bias can shift us on that that spectrum. So identifying where the athlete sits and then analyzing, is that working for them? You know, things that I'm looking at is number of injuries through the season, uh, practice time loss, games loss, output measures, you know, various things like that. And so that should regulate our thinking or, you know, influence our our thinking on what we're doing with programming. So if you've got a a hypermobile guy that, is what I call more elastically biased. You know, they use connective tissues for a lot of their power expression. Then making them stiffer might not be the way to go. But conversely, if you got a, a, a huge mesomorph that's very well developed and heavily muscled, and they're a slower converter. Um, You know, increasing stiffness on that person might not be the way to go either, because that may shorten their already limited range of motion down even more. So, so you know, I I think where we get into trouble is thinking in absolutism instead of you know the layers of the spectrum that exist in these classifications of athletes.
0: Yeah, and I think we've you know anecdotally we we certainly see athletes uh, you know who report feeling differently in response to, to loading, you know, particularly during the in-season period where a lot of those loose joint athletes, they they feel amazing. They, they actually almost want to do something daily. Um, you know, I've dealt with athletes that, you know, are playing six or seven days a week that, that want to do, you know, four strength training sessions just because it feels like, you know, they're, they're getting something out of it that's allowing them to perform at a higher level. And then, you take other athletes in at a different spectrum who comment, you know, on always feeling tight and things like that when they add more frequent lifting. So there clearly is like a there's an electrical charge that's taking place, you know, to that fascial system after, you know, a given strength training exposure, and it's 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 certainly an individual response, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I I think this gets into some of the topic on microdosing or minimal effective dose, and, and a lot of controversy in those terms, but. You know, finding out the right dosage and the right distribution of the dosage, I think, is what master coaches do well. So, you know, I've had sprinters that if you lift once every 10 to 15 days, they're fine. And it only takes a few global lifts and they maintain their output and their health very, very well. And I've had other sprinters that, you know, they need to lift two or three days out from a big race. Uh, for a variety of reasons, and if we take that away, the output goes down. So I think it's about being open-minded and really having good measures on these outcome and output and injury data to you know see if if we're moving the ball forward.
0: Absolutely, and and actually that that maybe leads to another good question is you know you, you commented on observations, right? So some of these are, are retrospective studies that you've done based on, you know, anecdotal things. Then you go and you look for trends, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a collection of athletes, you know, after a competitive season and you're, and you're backtracking to see, you know, where things went wrong, right? We, we saw this many hamstrings and this many groins and this many calves and all this stuff. You know, when you go back and you look at some of your preseason measures, um, what, what are your money makers? you know, from a, from a preliminary assessment standpoint, or what are the things that you look at in hindsight to really figure out, you know, how, how to, how to globally manage, is it range of motion measures for you? Is it strength measures? Is it, you know, even, even just, uh, you know, rating of perceived exertions, you know, subjective feedback from the athletes on how they're doing at various points. Is there a, a collection of, of assessments that you hang your hat on?
1: Well, all of those and, and- you know, we're a little bit biased here. We we have an integrated performance uh, mindset or paradigm, if you will. So, you know, I'm looking at therapy reports, um, you know, obviously biomechanical biomechan- factors, outcome measures. And these outcome measures are not just sport specific. You know, we have jump test batteries that are regular components to our weight room system. And we have various running components and uh, with field court sports, various change in direction measures. And, you know, like with downhill skiers, for example, you know, what are the angles as they enter a gate? What are the angles in their joint positions when they're in mid gate? And then as they depart the gate, so seeing how those things change over time and if there's a relationship to where on the hill they get injured or where in the course or where in the season. So there's a lot of layers to this. And I, I think the more files you have probably the better job you got at trying to figure out, you know, source of problems or source of success.
0: It, it, you know, building on that, have you found it to be more challenging in certain sporting realms? Like certainly in the, in the track and field world, there's, there's peaking for specific competitions You know, you go to, you know, the NBA and the NHL, there's multiple games per week, but it's not an everyday thing. You know, football is every Sunday or Saturday, depending on the level. You know, in baseball, we have, you know, 200 games in 230 days. Do you find that there's more noise with more frequent participation? Do you find that there's more noise even just, you know, having that long build before one high pressure, you know, event is one inherently easier or harder than the other?
1: No, I think they they all present unique challenge. So with baseball and NF, NBA and NHL, there's so many competitions. You know, we get a lot of competition information. You know, like miss games, miss practices. You know, out GPS measures during the game, so on and so forth. So we're getting way more pockets of data, if you will, where a track and field athlete competing once every two weeks, you know, we have less density of data. So on one side, it's great, we're getting tons of data. But on the other side, we've got less room to manage or, or niggle or nudge, because the competitions are so dense. So your ability to influence you know, in, in really dense competition, sports are, are restricted. In my mind, we're in a, a more open environment like track and field competing every seven to 10 days. You, you have wiggle room to influence or nudge or experiment.
0: I love that. And, you know, we hinted at it just a little bit before, and I know it's a, a topic that you've spoken about as well. Um, so I'm curious to see where your, where your head is at right now you know, the, the topic of how strong is strong enough for athletes. Um, seems to have gotten much more attention, you know, in recent years. Maybe it's because, you know, velocity-based training has taken off or we've, you know, we've gradually just shifted in the research world to, to looking at power a little bit more because we looked at strength and aerobic capacity in the past. It, it's obviously a, a huge topic to, to wrap our heads around, but do you have general thoughts on the subject? You know, it, it, are you feeling... Uh, you know that this is a an important discussion that we have as an industry
1: oh for sure um and it's my bias i i, I do think that there's certain strength qualities and strength expressions and power outputs that that are helpful you know for an individual athlete and you know it, it I kind of use the the analogy of ceilings and basements. So, like, is there an upper limit that once we go beyond that limit, the cost-benefit index reduces? And then there's a basement where if we don't hit a certain threshold, then are we really affecting biochemistry, bioelectrics, or, you know, biological stimuli? So my search is trying to figure out where there's ceilings and basements Uh, for anything that I'm going to prescribe or include in the program. So, for example, with acceleration runs on a field court athlete or a track athlete, we know it takes eight or nine excels to stimulate certain things that we think are important. And then on the top end, we know after about 21 runs, you know, mechanics break down or output reduces. So we have pretty defined ceilings and basements on a menu item, acceleration. And, and I really think that's where the future is, is, is looking at any menu item that we're going to prescribe or try to influence or bias in some way. Have we defined ceilings and basements for the for the dosage or the implementation of this stimuli? And then monitor and refine.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's obviously very um, you know sport specific. What you're going to expect of a lineman, or, or really any football player, is going to be markedly different than what you might expect of a of an NBA player. Are there are there are there points at which you think you and I hate to even use just conventional strength measures as as our numbers, but are there are there numbers for you that you know we think every one of our athletes, you know, or at least our male athletes, maybe as a, to, to narrow the scope a little bit, need to attain, you know, to to effectively start to think about sexier training, like what's the foundational level of strength that you see at a, you know, a college level athlete that has to be attained for a lot more of these more advanced initiatives to be be undertaken in a training program?
1: No, that's a good point. Some of this is kind of on stage of development. So, you know, like a middle school athlete versus a high school athlete versus a college athlete or a professional athlete, so I think it's about collecting norms over time and, and positions over time. So, you know, an interior defensive lineman versus a, a, a wide receiver, for example, you know, a different tasks and demands. So for me, I try to collect normative data that's position specific, sport specific and you know, stage or career specific. So. You know the strength needed by a 38-year-old quarterback versus a 22-year-old rookie probably are different.
0: Yeah, would you would you also say what that? You know, we we we've, we've all dealt with aging athletes, right? The, the athletes who are. You know 33 34 years old with you know with 15 years of training experience under their belt since they got to college and you know they're they're trying to prolong their career and maintain a high level of function obviously the the, the volume in many cases needs to come down where do you stand on the actual intensity side of things um you know do we do we load them comparably but less frequently do we do we accept that maybe less maximal strength is is necessary to have you know, a high level of function or just assume it's going to stick around a little bit easier because they spent so much time building it in the past? This, this is one I definitely wrestle with because we know aging athletes often feel substantially better when they lift less. But at the same time, we have to balance that against, you know, performing at a high level, which may be, you know, served as, you know by a crucial foundation of strength.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think all of those things are, are variables, but, but sometimes with certain menu items, we're kind of roped in with volume and intensity. So the only variable we can play with is density. So, you know, how do you do a 70% acceleration run? That, that's not really challenging acceleration capabilities. Mm-hmm. So for in our mind, if you're going to do an acceleration run, you probably need to be 90% or better. So you're kind of locked in on the intensity. And we just discussed the ceiling and basement idea of volume. So sometimes with certain menu items, we're kind of locked in on the bandwidth that we can play in in terms of volume and intensity. So that means the only other option we can use is this density variable like How frequently do we do it?
0: a that's a valid point. And then, and obviously solicit feedback from the athlete in terms of how they're responding um, and and monitor performance, because if you're minimizing the frequency, you have to make sure that they're not actually detraining in the process, which is just as problematic.
1: Yeah. And I, I think a lot of us are biased by our studies and our, you know, our research and the groups that we follow. So, you know, when I was, In my younger days as a coach, you know, I just noticed with certain jumpers in season that if we did Olympics once every 10 days and did some kind of absolute strength measure about once every 16 days, that these guys maintained output and health really well. And that was heresy back then. You know, oh, you got to lift three times a week. And in season, yeah, you can drop down to twice a week. But, when, you know, when I was telling people, hey, we're lifting maybe once every two to three weeks, they thought I had five eyeballs.
0: It's, uh, it was incredibly eye-opening for me personally. I had my, my first orthopedic surgery uh, back in January. You we're know, recording this in June. I was shocked at actually how little strength I, I lost just because I'm, you know, I'm 40 years old now and I've basically been in a weight room for 22 years, relatively consistency. It, it does t- tend to hang around pretty well.
1: Well, I I think this is an under-researched realm of of return to play, return to perform, or aging athlete research. And I I term it refractory curves. So how many sessions do we need to get back to baseline existence? So I've had athletes that retire for a year, you know, just burn out or injuries Mm -hmm. mounted or life got in the way. And then they'll, you know, a year later they decide to climb back in. And I've had world-class athletes, like the third session back in the weight room after 18 months off, return to pre-existing PR levels on certain lips. So their refractory curve is pretty steep. Now, other people on other menu items, refractory curve may be flatter. You know, it may take them three months or six months to get back to those existing levels. But I, I don't think we have very good research or data or people are even looking at these refractory curve uh, considerations,
0: especially the slope of these curves. That's a tremendous point, point. and may, maybe uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you in a different ways. So I'm, I'm curious. You're obviously incredibly well-read and, and a lifelong learner. Um, what intrigues you now? You know, what, what, what's the stuff that when you wake up at 3 a.m. and you stare off into blackness And you start to wonder, well, we don't really have an answer for this. Um, You know, what do you think the next frontiers are for us, you know, in the coaching field to to really learn? Well, I think as technology
1: improves, you know, AI is going to give us uh, deeper, more immediate insights into trends and patterns. You know, I'm kind of a fractal geometry mathematician. So I wake up at night, you know, seeing patterns within patterns, within patterns. So trend analysis, pattern recognition. Because again, a lot of these variables we discussed today, they have bandwidth. There there aren't defined absolutes, but defining that bandwidth is critical. I mean, in in our data with certain measures, if we get outside that bandwidth, we know injury risk goes up and we know output efficiencies are reduced. So I, I think in the world of pattern and trend analysis that's kind of a new frontier and something i do a lot of work in obviously uh, you know with the work that the stecos are doing and Schlepp in germany and whatnot with fascia and fascia slings and and joint hydraulics i mean so much of our work we look at the engineering of the human body from a statics engineering standpoint you know levers and joints and whatnot but we don't really understand the power and the function of fluid dynamics in the human body. You know, if you've ever sprung your ankle and it swole really bad, you know it adapted your movement. That's too much fluid in a space. And conversely, if you've ever been dehydrated, you know what that does to your movement outcomes. And that's an example of not enough fluid in the right places at the right moment. So I think studying and learning about fluid dynamics, uh, correlated and tied to the the collagen matrix, are probably new frontiers. It's something I'm spending a lot of time in.
0: And I think those intrigue me, you know, you know, certainly in the context of you know how we produce and transfer force. But I I don't want to speak for you, but I they intrigue me more in the context of of how we make athletes more sustainable. You know, what, how do we keep them healthy because it, you know, we still have a world of, of coaches out there who maybe deny the the, the benefit of manual therapy and, and maybe don't appreciate how it helps just because we haven't necessarily had the technology to really explain it. You know, it's, it's been on cave paintings for 4000 years. I'm curious. What, do you think there's a mechanism that you know, is more clear in your eyes that maybe just hasn't gotten out there yet? Or do you think we still have to do a lot more research to get there?
1: Well again, I think we're somewhat limited by technology, so you know the fascial research realms what twenty years old maybe, yeah. and you know it's it's coming more in vogue as people figure out how to stain fashion and how to look at fashion like in floppy cadavers versus preserved cadavers and you know, doing various EMG studies and ultrasound scans, you know, where we can look at fluid dynamics in these fascial layers or in joint capsules or whatnot. So as the technology evolves, you know, I think we're going to, you know, find more and more answers. If if I had to have a critique in in sports medicine or training theory science, I think there's a lack of appreciation of joint positioning and joint function and how that affects soft tissue and biomechanical outputs. You know, I I use the analogy that the joints are like uh, pulley wheels on a block and tackle system. And if those pulley wheels are not tracking well or spinning right, then the ropes in that pulley system break. So a lot of these soft tissue injuries, well-meaning people are looking at the structures and kind of the pathology of the injury rather than looking at the causality. And in my research, joint positioning and joint functioning have huge influence on this. And it's usually multiple joint systems. It's a conspiracy of joints that are causing the soft tissue injury. So our myopics of just looking at the tissue that was injured and trying to strengthen or, you know, help improve the remodeling of the tissue is way short-sighted. I
0: think that's a, an outstanding point. In the recovery realm, you know, obviously that's, that's something that's, that's vitally important, particularly as the, the frequency of competition goes up, but but also in the context of, you know, training. What, what are the what are the things that you hang your hat on? What are the most important initiatives that you found benefit to, um, you know, whether you're an elite sprinter or whether you're a, you know, a 15-year-old kid who's, who's playing a doubleheader on Saturday and Sunday?
1: Well, this is going to sound a little cliche and probably oversimplified, but life management 101 would be first stop. You know, if your life's in chaos and it's irregular and all over the shop, you know, you're fighting with one arm tied behind your back. Sleep hygiene and diet nutrition would be next layers. So, you know, those are the big rocks. If I can get athletes uh, learning to cope and manage life and and use their resources to improve life management, and and I can get some consistency on the sleep hygiene front and the diet nutrition front, uh, we're we're way ahead of the curve. I, I love that.
0: An important reminder to focus on the basics first and foremost.
1: Yeah, and then next layer of stuff, you know, like different types of, of saunas and you know recovery mechanisms, you know, hydrotherapies and and whatnot. But you know, we, we can ha- we can knock the knock it out of the park with life management and nutrition and sleep hygiene and all these tools for recovery. But if the programming shit, you know, yeah, we we're,
0: we're fighting an uphill battle that's an outstanding point you know it's it's analogous to i guess uh driving a car that's out of alignment you can change the oil and change the tires all you want you're still going to wind up in the same place
1: unfortunately some people can't see the forest for the trees
0: there <laughs> absolutely well one of the things that we always try to do at the end of these podcasts is a little bit of a lightning round where we ask a, a collection of of questions of folks that you know, your answer can be as as long as you want but um it's so the first one if you give one bit of advice to, to a starting out coach, you know, that the 22 year old guy who just graduated from a a exercise science program is is ready to take on the world, what would it be?
1: Well, I'd say job well done on, uh, on building a, a toolbox of knowledge, but now you need to go out and learn how to manage and problem solve. So build your networks, stay curious, stay diverse, and study in a broad spectrum of topics.
0: I love that. Now, you you alluded earlier to this this concept of building out a team. Um, you know, not just your network, but obviously the people that you work, you know, collaboratively with on a daily basis. You know, with, with specific athletes that you co-manage. Are, are there key principles that you think are vitally important in the context of the, that team dynamic, the sports medicine slash skill development slash strength addition coach scenario that we see so often in college and professional and, and, you know, high school sports as well.
1: Yeah, I think the, the big barrier there is learning how to build a group that operates horizontally rather than vertically. So, you know, do, do all the uh, stakeholders have an equal seat at the table? Or are they listened to? Or are their ideas promoted and, and sought and pondered? Uh, you know, it's easy for that table to get pretty biased and pretty siloed pretty quick. And when people don't feel respected or heard or, you know, contributing, then, you know, they're going to create chaos or they're going to shut down or, or or work in, you know, biased manners. So I think developing a culture of horizontal um, communication and respect is critical.
0: I love that. All right. Now, something you were wrong about and, and what you learned from it and how you changed. <laughs>
1: Uh, my, my entire
0: career is
1: built on wrongs.
0: <laughs> that's just, uh, I mean, your, your humility is, has always been fundamentally apparent in, in a lot of your writings and your teachings. So I respect that a lot. What's, what's your best example? What do you got for us?
1: Well, you know, growing up as I did, uh, I, I was a science major and yeah, a science teacher. And so I worshiped at the altar of science pretty blindly until I was about 30. Well, it actually started in grad school where I learned that stats can be distorted to say whatever picture you want. <laughs> um, but I would say I went down the rabbit hole of, blind, of following science blindly with, uh, without a critical thinking hat on.
0: I think that's a, a, a great point and, and a good one to end on. Um, Dan, this was outstanding. Um, no, no surprise there. You've been a, a great contributor to the field for a long time, and, and I know I've benefited a lot. Um, folks can find you on Twitter. It's uh, at pfaffsc, and they can also check you out um, via altis.world It's a l t i s dot world, where you have some great educational products there, and you know collaborative efforts with some other excellent coaches. Thanks so much for taking the time. This was a blast, and I learned a lot. I'm sure everyone else did as well well
1: well thanks for having me a lot of respect for what you guys do and how you do it
0: thanks so much dan thank you for joining us for another episode of the csp elite baseball development podcast if you enjoyed this episode we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on itunes we welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions just email elite at gmail.com Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.